Father, I pray that as we look in your word this morning, we don't just see words in a text, but we see you more clearly, and that for us this morning, you are high and lifted up. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, my wife, one of her favorite books is uh, Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, and you know, it is a great story, Harper Lee's only book, made into a movie, if you've never seen it, it's uh, I don't know if it's arguably if the movie's as good as the book or not, but it's pretty close. They're both awfully good. Anyway, in this story, um, there's a kind of part of the highlight uh, or maybe a, a mini climax in the larger scheme of things in the book, but there's a court scene in which Tom Robinson, who's a black man, this is in the South during the Depression, Tom Robinson is accused of raping and beating a young white woman, Mayella Ewell. And in this courtroom scene, Tom Robinson is the defendant, and he's being accused. And part of the problem is uh, Tom Robinson says he is innocent, and Mayella Ewell says he's guilty of this crime. There's no witnesses. So you've got one person saying one thing, and the other person saying the other. Claim and counterclaim. And there's no other way, apparently, to determine who's telling the truth and who isn't. That she was at least beaten was beyond doubt because of the bruising that she had displayed when the sheriff was called, so that was beyond doubt. But Atticus Finch, Jem and Scout's father, the hero of this story, and by the way, if you've read the story, you know that the good guys have bird names, and Tom Robinson is like a mockingbird who does no one any harm but just sings all day, and you don't kill mockingbirds. Tom Robinson is the mockingbird in the story. Atticus Finch has to figure out a way to get beyond the claims and the counterclaims to get at the truth. Now, he knows Tom Robinson's not guilty, and frankly, most of the people there know it as well, but this is the Deep South during the Depression, segregation, prejudice, etc., and so to be able to get that out in the open is not necessarily that easy. So Atticus Finch, all he's got is claim and counterclaim. He's got testimony from two people saying exactly the opposite things and no other witnesses. So he has to figure out a way to make the truth evident to all when there's no other way apparently to do so. So he does this by doing a few things. He points out that Tom Robinson is right-handed and is without the use of his left arm because it was crippled. He was injured as a youth, so he can't use his left arm. And then he points out that the beating that this young woman sustained was by a left-handed individual. And then he points out through a little trick that Mr. Ewell, Mayella's father, is known as an angry, violent man, and he's also left-handed. And so Atticus Finch posed with this dilemma where a guy's life is on the line. There's claim and counterclaim. There's no witnesses. How do you get to the truth? He goes behind the testimony, as it were, and he displays for the court to see, for the jury to see, that Tom Robinson is not their man, that Tom Robinson is innocent. He has to display it. He has to go beyond what would be readily apparent otherwise. I say this just to lead into the text we're in this morning. We're back in 1 Kings 3, and you can turn there if you'd like. If you remember last week in 1 Kings 3, we met the next king of Israel, King Solomon. God appears to him in a dream and says, ask me what you'd like me to give you or to do for you. And rather than all the things that Solomon might have asked for, he asks for wisdom so that he can wisely or appropriately honor God by leading God's people. 
And there in 1 Kings 3, verse 12, God says to Solomon, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise afterward. And the question arises, what did it look like that God gave him this wisdom? And how does he know he's got it? And how does the nation know that he's got it? So on the heels of this dream and this request, and then God affirming that he'll do what Solomon asked, we have this story. This is one of the better known stories, certainly related to Solomon's reign. And it's the story that's best associated with his wisdom. 1 Kings 3, verse 16. What God will do in this story right at the beginning of Solomon's reign is to display the fact that he has given Solomon wisdom to lead this people. He's going to let everybody know because he's going to give Solomon a test case, as it were. Two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. The one said, O my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. It happened on the third day after I gave birth that this woman also gave birth to a child, and we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, only the two of us in the house. That is, Lord King, there's no witnesses to the story I'm telling you. I have no way to affirm, I have no way to back up the claim I'm making to you this morning. This woman's son died in the night because she lay on it. So she arose in the middle of the night, took my son from beside me while your maidservant slept, and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead son in my bosom. When I rose in the morning to nurse my son, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him carefully in the morning, behold, he was not my son whom I had borne. Then the other woman said, No, for the living one is my son and the dead one is your son. But the first woman said, No. For the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king, claim and counterclaim, and no witnesses in between. Then the king said, The one says, This is my son who is living, and your son is the dead one. The other says, No, for your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. The king said, Get me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. The king said, Divide the living child in two. Give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose child was the living one spoke to the king, for she was deeply stirred over her son, and said, O my Lord, give her the living child. By no means kill him. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide. Then the king said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother." When all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Now here's Solomon, the new king, the brand new king. He's asked God for wisdom, and maybe he didn't feel any tingling when God said, you've got it. Or maybe he heard in the dream, but he's not sure. And so all of a sudden, in front of his feet falls this difficult case. Now, It's likely these gals have ended up here as part of a process. If you remember Israel in the wilderness, they're in the wilderness and they meet Moses' father-in-law Jethro. And and Jethro watches this thing transpire where in the day Moses takes a seat and these people line up in front of him. And they're there all day. And they're there all day because Moses is judging Israel. And so everyone with a claim or a counterclaim, comes to Moses to get justice. And Jethro says, this is not a good thing because you're wearing yourself out, you're wearing the people out. In other words, they can't get what they need because there's only one of you. 
So Jethro advises that he sets up basically levels of administrative judges who will judge in order. That is, you'd come to the nearest judge. If he could satisfy the claim, he would do it. If he couldn't, it would pass up the chain or up the ladder. This would be just like our court system today. You know, if you have a minor case, it'll go to the closest court. And if that isn't adequate, it'll go up. And that's probably what happened here. Two women with a claim and a counterclaim, no witnesses, and they come to this administrative judge, and he says, I don't know what to do. And so it's bumped up the ladder, and Solomon gets this difficult case right on the front end of his reign. He's going to display here for the nation the wisdom that he'll become famous for, but remember, he's this untried, untested son of David. Nobody knows what he's like. Nobody knows what to expect from him. He has no reputation at this point. It's just him, and everybody's wondering, can he pull it off? I want to go through in order four things he does here, which I would argue are the display of his wisdom, most of which you and I can practice every day. One element, at least, uh, we may find a little bit more difficult. But look at this in the order in which the story takes place. The first thing he did, which I would argue displays his wisdom, is simple. And it almost can go without saying, but it is this, that he listened to the ladies. He listened to the claim, and then he listened to the counterclaim. Now, you may think, gosh, that's, you, you don't even need to say that, but I think you do. He listened to the claim, and he listened to the counterclaim. You know that wis, uh, Solomon is the author and the collector, in some cases, of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And so you're going to see Solomon practicing in this first case some of what he'll preach later in life. Listen to this out of Proverbs 18, verse 13. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. That is, I'm not prejudiced. I listen to the case. I don't make up my mind beforehand. I don't answer before I've heard the whole story. It's shame and folly, Solomon will say later, to do that. I hear the whole thing before I make a conclusion. Proverbs 18:17 The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. You've probably heard this. If you've heard one side of the story, what have you really heard? You haven't heard it all. You hear the first person and they're they're persuasive and they're passionate and you say, "Well, that must be the way it is." And Solomon says, mm, "Maybe not." Till you've heard both sides, you haven't heard it all. And then Proverbs 25:2 It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. In this case, in dispensing judgment, searching out a matter means listening to the claim and the counterclaim. It means listening to all the available evidence or testimony. And that's where Solomon starts. This isn't rocket science, but it's important. Uh, Some people will tell you, especially related to marriages and communication in general, that listening is an art. And listening needs to be active. That you have to actively engage in listening and taking in what another person is saying. You work at it. Uh, Probably many of you know, if you've got a father or a husband, that you may be speaking, and you may ask, are you listening? And he may say yes, and you know he's not. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Did you hear that? Uh-huh. You know, behind the paper. Solomon's not doing that. 
He's listening. He's actively taking it in. He's hearing both sides. He's not making up his mind ahead of the time. And he's searching out. He wants to hear everything there is to hear. This is wise. Here's a claim. He's going to have to figure it out. The first thing he does is he listens. He doesn't prejudge. He doesn't assume. He doesn't tune out. He actively listens. For you and I, when we are engaged with each other in communication, whether it's your marriage, whether it's at work, at play, whatever, listening is something you do actively. Passive listening is not good listening. You have to actively be listening and tuned in to what someone else is saying. The second thing he does is, in verse 23, he summarizes or he restates what he just heard. Now, in verse 23, that merely means he says this. The king said, the one says, this is my son who is living and your son is the dead one. And the other says, no, for your son is the dead one and my son is the living one. This is short. And, and by the way, sometimes in the scriptures, uh, Proverbs is a great example Sometimes God throws us softballs so that we get it, what he's just told us. So, for instance, in Proverbs 1, Proverbs tells us to get wisdom and to avoid evil people. And then it gives us a softball case. In Proverbs 1, it says, don't go. If somebody comes up and says, hey, cast your lot in with us. We're going to beat these people up on the roads. We're going to steal their money. We're going to have a high life. This was easy. Don't go with them. And it's like, wow. Not rocket science, but you see, it's the easy application of something that Solomon had just said. Avoid evil. What's that look like? Well, gosh, it at least looks like this. We can start here. We can agree on this. So here, this is, I think, in the text, in the storyline, we could have been told probably hundreds of stories, but we're given an easy one here, sort of. The case wasn't easy, but it's a softball case to talk about. So here... Solomon restates what he's heard. And restating what he's heard here is just, okay, this woman says, that's my son, the live one. And this woman says, no, it's not. That live son is mine. But he restates what he's heard. Now, this is important. Sometimes you and I will actively listen, and we might think that we heard what someone said, and we didn't. Or we might have heard the words they said, but we don't know what they really meant. So, When you hear something, do what Solomon did. Restate to the other person what you think you heard. What you, the words they said, or your understanding of what they said. Brad's smiling because he's seen this. In other words, I'm making sure that I understand what you're saying. You may communicate poorly. You may say something that's not actually what you mean. Well, when I restate that, I can decide, did I really hear what you said? Am I understanding what you're saying? Are your words really what you mean, or do you need me to understand something differently? So when we restate something, we're making sure we heard that person correctly. We're making sure we've got it right. One of the ways I think, for me, it's helpful to do this is to say, to restate, to make a summary myself back to the person and ask them, is this what you mean? Is this what you mean to say? I found myself not infrequently in groups in which we'll have discussions, and especially if someone's giving you an opposing point of view, you need to be careful that you're really hearing what they have to say. And the best way I know to do that is to restate or to restate by way of a question. Are you saying ABC? 
do you mean X, Y, Z? Do I understand you correctly to mean this or that? It's the best way to make sure you're on the same page. You may answer a question they're not, they're not asking. You may go on a long tirade about something they didn't mean. So after you've actively listened, the next best thing to do in order is to restate or to give a summary of what you understood that person to say. And that's what Solomon does here. He summarizes. He restates. And if the women said, no, that's not what I meant, then they can do so right then. No, you got it wrong. That's not what I meant. But of course, in this case, it is meant. It's simple. It's a simple case in the claim and the counterclaim. But he restates. And when you and I are listening to others, whether we're solving a dilemma or not, restate what you think you heard, what you think they said, and make sure you understood them correctly. That's exactly what Solomon did. The third thing he did here was he got behind the claim and the counterclaim. And in this case, in the case of this story, he used a ruse. He used a trick to get these two women to expose themselves in a way that the claim and the counterclaim didn't. Like Atticus Finch in the courtroom, he has to get beyond the claim and the counterclaim because that won't be enough to solve the mystery. Who's lying and who's telling the truth? Both women come in, equally valid claims, and no witnesses. So the claim alone isn't going to be enough information. He has to get more information than is available through their testimony. So he does it by making a proposal. Now, they don't know this, but he does, that this is a ruse. It's a trick that he's employing to get them to reveal something about themselves that hasn't been yet revealed. So his ruse is this. Bring me the sword. We'll cut the living baby in half, and we'll give each mother a piece. We'll satisfy them both. They each get half of the baby. Now, of course, this was never what he intended. But this proposal, and remember as the king, he can do it. This isn't an idle proposal. This can be important in your application or mine. This isn't idle. He can do it. He has the power and the authority to do it. And you know, in the ancient Middle East, it could happen. So he makes this proposal, not because that's where he's really going, but because he wants to see how the women will respond to it. Now, this is a, it's a stroke of brilliance, isn't it? He knows that something will be true about the real mother that isn't true of the other. And, that, and the reality of the real mother will be this. She'll love her son so much, she'll do anything to keep him from harm. So this proposal, this trick, is going to elicit information that wasn't otherwise available. He's going to find out by the trick which one's the real mom because he knows something will be true about her that won't be true about the other woman. And of course, it works. Because the real mom says, don't harm him, give him to her, keep him alive, spare him. And the trick in this case, of course, works. The other woman, probably motivated somewhat out of envy that the, other, that the first woman has a living son and she's lost hers, she doesn't love this boy like the real mom. And so they both, through this ruse, through this proposal, Solomon gets information that wasn't formerly available. This woman really loves this little baby. And this other woman, the second woman, she doesn't. And this makes it easy. Now, this step three in this four-step process, 
This is the hitch right here. Uh, you and I, we can mechanically tell ourselves to do a couple things. Listen actively. Yes, I'm really listening. Restate. Did I hear you say? This is the easy part. The more difficult step is step three. This is the divine wisdom part. This is the divine wisdom part. There are a couple things I think when you and I think about applying this that we can do, though, to be wisely prepared for these dilemmas when we're trying to figure out what's the case and what, what do I need to do. The first is this. You can be prepared with Solomon's wisdom because it's available. Solomon's wisdom, the wisest man on the earth ever, it's available, and it's between the covers of your Bible, right? And you can just read Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. You can read Song of Songs, not a wisdom book per se, but you can read Solomon's writings. Remember, he, he put a collection together of what he understood were wise sayings that would give you the ability to live life wisely, part of which includes interacting with others and discerning things that are otherwise difficult to discern. So the first thing you can do is become acquainted, familiarize yourself with what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? That's the best place to start with wisdom. If God doesn't do any more, we're probably equipped for about 95% of the kinds of judgment and wisdom cases we need or that we'll face. What has the Bible already said about a thing or a situation? If we know what it teaches, we're already prepared. We have Solomon's wisdom going in. Uh, The second thing, if I can remember my notes in order... Uh, James says in James 1, if you lack wisdom, ask. If you lack wisdom, ask. Now, I think God's a little hesitant to simply uh, shock you with divine wisdom if you haven't already read the wisdom he's given you. Do you know what I mean by this? If uh, I give you $100 and you don't take it with you and I'm out with you and you say, Dad, give me, would you give me 50? And I say, where's the 100? I've already given you 50, and I've given you 50 more. Where is it? Well, I forgot it at home. So will you give me 50 more? I might say, well, Junior, go home and get what I already gave you. Uh, Don't presume on James 1. Don't presume on James 1. Get wisdom. Be active in getting wisdom. And then, when you're in those situations where you don't have it, ask God for wisdom. James tells us, look, God's not niggardly in his giving. He's not somebody who resents giving you something you need. No, he's generous. So if you're in a situation and you're racking your brain, you're rattling your brain, Lord, what what do I do? And you don't know, James says, ask for wisdom because he'll generously supply you what you need. So study the scriptures. Get wisdom ahead. Be prepared. Then when you find yourself in a situation in which you think, Lord, I don't know what text applies. I don't know how to apply the wisdom of the scriptures. I don't know what to do. Then ask. Ask for it. Third, if you find that you still don't know what to do, and this is what I suggest, stop, pray, and tell them you'll get back to them. Okay? I'm serious. Very serious about this. You might say, well, Lord, I've read my Bible, and I've asked you for wisdom, and I still don't know what to do. Oftentimes you'll find you don't have to do something immediately. So don't. If you don't know what to do, don't. You can say to a person who needs a response from you, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do, let me pray about it and I'll get back to you. 
Sometimes we may be faced with an emergency or we may be faced with a decision in which we simply have to act. We have to make a decision. In that case, think, Lord, what, what have you said about the situation? Lord, give me your wisdom. And then you take your best shot and you go down the road. But if you don't have to do something at the moment, just stop and say, you know what? I need to pray about it and I'll get back with you. And then pray about it and get back with them. But those three things come in And the James 1, I guess, is this point 3. Sometimes Solomon, he didn't know what case was coming before him. And I'm assuming in the divine way that God did bless him with wisdom that no one else would have, he simply knew, intuitively or otherwise, he knew what to do. And when you and I are faced with situations where we've got this dilemma, we're not sure, maybe even what the facts are, how to proceed, etc., we can at least do these We can apply the scripture, the wisdom God's already given us. We can ask God for wisdom to solve the dilemma. And we can pray and wait and get back to them if we don't know what to do otherwise. If you have to act, apply the wisdom you know, ask God for wisdom, give it your best shot, and go down the road. Also, you know if you're a parent and you have more than one child or children old enough to interact with each other, does this sound familiar? Uh, He hit me first. No, he hit me first. She started it. No, she started it. I love the fact that this story gives a parent the answer to the solution. What do I do when my kids have claim and counterclaim? You cut them in half. Yeah, you cut them in half and you're done. So kids, look out. Oh, yeah. The fourth thing is he drew his conclusion from the women's response, right? He just, he stated the obvious now. The first woman, she's the mother. How do I know? Well, she's the one who has a mother's love for this child. He states the obvious. The wisdom point was demonstrated because the first woman was the mother and she's not going to let harm come to her child if she can help it. So the truth is displayed and Solomon concludes this session by stating the obvious. In the To Kill a Mockingbird, unfortunately, of course, in that story, the obvious is obvious. But because there are other factors involved, the mockingbird is still convicted. But the truth was still displayed. Justice wasn't available, but truth was still displayed. And by the way, sometimes you and I won't affect necessarily outcomes, even if we can do these things, these four things, we may still not guarantee the desirable outcome. But we can still do as much as is within our power to wisely interact in these difficult situations or simply the communication process that needs to take place every day between spouses, workmates, friends, etc. Listen, restate, ask for wisdom or apply wisdom and then state or come to the appropriate conclusion. The end of this brief story is this, verse 28. When all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Remember that as the new king, new kid on the block, Solomon's untried and he's a question mark. And he does not come in like King David, his dad, did. And he does not come in like Saul did. Remember, these guys were warriors. They defended the nation. They went out in battle and they kicked the enemy out. And they came in as known quantities, people that could defend the nation. And Solomon's an unknown quantity. 
And the result of this case that God providentially brought to his feet at the beginning of his reign was that the nation feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. They get it. This is God's provision for our nation. And we realize you can't pull the wool over his eyes. This guy's wise and he's shrewd. And so a fear here is an appropriate response. In fact, throughout especially the Old Testament, you'll see that fear of the king is an appropriate thing. Awe, respect, reverence, etc. For this person who has authority and power, including the sword, including that of life and death. So Solomon listened. He restated or he summarized. He went beyond the claims and the counterclaims to get the truth. He went beyond just what the verbal testimony was to make sure he could display what was true. And then he concluded with the obvious. Uh, On a Sunday in which we're going to observe the Lord's Supper, uh, let me apply some of these things in a little uh, different way. Um, Hebrews 4.13 says this, There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Uh, These gals came into court, Solomon's court that morning, and one was lying. You know, from the outside, you couldn't tell who. You know, the court that you and I stand in, the the important one, the king and the judge we stand before, you don't have to open your mouth when you come in because he knows it all already. You and I may fool everyone around us, but we never fool Christ. We never fool God. We never fool the judge of all the earth. The God, and and by the way, in John's gospel, you know that Jesus says all judgment has been committed to him by the Father. He is the judge. He is the king that we have to do with. And he sees all. There's no getting around. There's no shading the truth. There's no claims and counterclaims with him. He knows everything. You can't hide. You can't hide the truth. You can't lie and get away with it. You give up because he knows it all. Solomon didn't know it all. He got, he got at the truth in this case, but the one with whom we have to do, we come in and he knows it all from the beginning. There's no, no fooling him. God knows. Also, in this case, death was a possibility to this poor child, of course. Ezekiel 18.4 says, The soul or the person that sins will die. Solomon gave a judgment initially that would have meant death for the child. And, of course, in this case, it was meant to get at the truth and spare life, actually. Get the uh, live baby boy back to the true mother. The truth is, for you and I, though, the judgment hall we come into, we all come in guilty. And God says the soul that sins, that's you and me, there's none who does good, there's none righteous, no, not one, there's none who seeks God. The soul that sins will die. There is a sword of justice. It's in God's hand, Jesus Christ, and the soul that sins will die. In the halls of justice that you and I inhabit, we've got a problem. God knows the truth, and he knows that we've all fallen short of his glory, and that means we're under a sentence, a just sentence of death. There's an upside, though which is Romans 8 and 9, Romans 5, 8 and 9, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood or his death, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. God had a dilemma in a sense 
related to the case of justice for you and I. And it was this. You've got a holy God who wants to dispense mercy. You've got a holy God who can abide no sin, who's also a loving, kind, and merciful God who doesn't want to have to dispense justice or judgment toward us. So the dilemma here, the Gordian knot for God, so to speak, from our perspective, how can God satisfy His holiness and show us mercy? They appear to be exclusive. There appears to be no way for these two things to be reconciled. But of course, God cuts the Gordian knot by coming in the person of His Son. He fulfills His holiness and His justice by cursing his son Jesus on the cross so that he can display and grant us his mercy without in any way impinging on his holiness. In this court of law, in the eternal court of law, so to speak, it looked like there was no way for God to do both, that he would either have to be just and condemn all of us as sinners, or he would have to break his character of holiness to forgive us and show us mercy. But the truth is, in Christ, he solved what looked like an unsolvable problem. He satisfied his justice and his holiness on the cross, and that's the place that we get his mercy instead of his judgment. And then Acts 9.31, you remember what it says about the people's response to Solomon? They feared the king because they knew that God's wisdom was in him to administer justice. Listen to Acts 9.31. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. This church, seeing God's or Christ's judgment and interaction through the miracles and the judgments that had taken place, you see both. You see miraculous healings in these opening chapters of Acts and you see God acting in judgment in Acts 5 against those who were lying to the Holy Spirit, a husband and wife team. You see both. And you see God moving in signs and miracles to confirm that the message that these lowlifes from Galilee were spreading again about this dead rabbi from up north, that the message was true because there were signs and wonders accompanying their preaching. And the effect was Acts 9.31, the church went on in the fear of the Lord, just like Israel with Solomon. The church went on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. In this, this is not contradictory. The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I fear Christ because I realize who He is and what He is. But I'm comforted because I know that He loves me and that He's died to save me. You know, the truth for you and I, we do not stand in Solomon's courts today. Solomon's the pinnacle of time, of of majesty and glory and a kingdom on earth. Uh, Already happens under Solomon. Grand and glorious halls, wealth all around, the wisdom of God. You know, the truth is we have it better than Solomon. We stand in the court of Solomon's son, his heir, and his Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Remember Colossians 2 says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, we can fear Christ because we know who He is and what He's like. But it's the same reason we take comfort, because He's our head. As the church, He's our head. He's our Savior. 
We've got it better than the gals in Solomon's days who came into this court, one at least, seeking justice. We stand in the courts, in the halls, if you will, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God who sees all, the person in whom God's holiness and judgment meet with his mercy and his kindness. And this is the one before whom we stand today. Solomon, you know this, I'm sure, but when you look at figures and stories in the scripture, ask yourself this question, what does this say about Jesus Christ? You remember because in the end of the book of the Bible in Revelation, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. And in Luke 24, when Jesus walks with these two guys from Jerusalem back to their village, or maybe a husband and wife, says he starts with the prophets and he talks about the Messiah and all these things. Well, when you read the scriptures, the stories in themselves are great, but they're not enough. You need to ask yourself, what do I learn to be true about Christ based on this text? How does this help me know Christ better? If we just gain knowledge, it's not enough. It's in Christ that are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And when you see Solomon, he's an example of Christ, of a golden reign, an age of promise and blessing yet to come. And if you remember, the promises made to David were, you could say, short-term fulfilled in Solomon, an heir for David's throne. But Solomon's reign ended. And the promise given to David was that he would have a son that would sit on the throne whose kingdom would never end. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you see Solomon, think of Christ. And when you think of judgment and conundrums, difficult situations, take a passage like this. It's God's wisdom for you and I. It's the wisdom of Jesus Christ displayed for us through Solomon. Listen. Restate, exercise wisdom, get behind perhaps what's just being stated, and then draw the, the appropriate conclusions. In the end, you know, it's a, it's a treat. It's entirely freeing to know whether I'm con, uh, concerned about my own sin or whether I'm concerned about making a wise decision. We go to the same resource and we can get whatever we need. Go to Christ, you get the wisdom you need. Go to Christ, you get the comfort you need. Go to Christ for whatever it is. It's better than living in Solomon's kingdom or in his day. He's a king who's always there. His reign is eternal. We've already entered in on it, and it just goes on from here. So I love that. Uh, I love Acts 9 with 1 Kings 3.28, going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That's true because of who we belong to, Jesus Christ the source of life, the source of wisdom. Let's pray. Lord, Solomon's day was uh, glorious. You displayed your wisdom and your grandeur through him. But Lord, the truth is, like all of us, he blew it, and he blew it big time. He didn't finish the race well. Lord, thanks that when we view him, he can be a lens or a mirror through which we see his greater son, his greater heir, the Lord Jesus. Help us not to hang our hopes on men or on each other, however wise or prudent we may think someone else to be. Lord, help us to hang our hopes on one who cannot disappoint. Help us, Lord, to set our hopes and our desires in you. 
thinks that when we make you and your goals our priorities, our hearts and our lives are set in the right direction. Lord, for the issues in our life that we're not sure what to do about, I pray that you'd speak to each one of us, both through your word and by your spirit, to give us the wisdom we need. And Lord, when we're interacting with each other, help us to show the wisdom Solomon displayed. Help us to listen, to not prejudge or draw conclusions prematurely. Help us to communicate clearly. Help us to get beyond, perhaps, sometimes, Lord, what's merely being said to what the truth is, what the essential elements are. Lord, thanks that in you we have a resource that never fails. We want to cast ourselves on your mercy, so to speak, Lord, in your courts with reckless abandon, knowing that, Lord, from you we don't just gain insight and wisdom, but we gain life and truth. In the fear of you, Lord, we proceed on in the comfort of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.